Well, it is so good to be with you here this morning. Uh, you beautiful Tyndale community, you beautiful people of God. I know a lot of people talk about the building, how splendorous it is, but it's you, the people of God that shine. And it is a, a real special honor for me to be with you as we celebrate God's good gift in Gary Nelson and all that he has meant to this community, to the broader Christian community around us. But as I've been thinking about this time together, I've been wondering, what is the genre of this address? Is it, is it like a roast that we're doing for Gary, where we get to pick on and point out and embarrass all those lovely things that we love about Gary? Or maybe it's like, I don't know, a wedding uh, speech where we get all sentimental and sappy. Or is it like a eulogy? <laughs> well, I'm a pastor. I think Gary hangs around with a lot of pastors. I think you, you need more comedian friends that you could have brought here to give some of these. But so I default to a sermon and hopefully point us to Jesus. This community, Tyndale University and Seminary, is is aiming to equip leaders, to, to form the minds and hearts and characters of people, to, to, to raise up distinctive Christian leaders. That has always been a, a passionate part of Gary's heart, to see distinctive Christian leaders, both in church and in the marketplace, raised up. But when you think about that, what an absolutely fraught challenge that is. Because we regularly witness way too many Christian leaders who have um, just shipwrecked either their lives or their ministries through moral failures, through uh, power abuses. I think recently we've seen Christian leaders who in the midst of ministry are losing their faith as well. And so to lead in the name of Jesus, it is, it's a risky venture. But even more so, I'm thinking about all the challenges that we face in this contemporary post-Christian environment, all the cultural conditions of our secular age. How, how do we lead and minister in a culture that no longer needs God? At least it confesses it doesn't. How do we lead in the context of this dizzying cultural change, all the evolutions and revolutions, the spiritual, social, cultural environments in which we serve and minister. Gary and I will sometimes laugh about the educations that we've received, not dismissing them, but recognizing they prepared us for a world that no longer exists. They gave us the skills that aren't particularly helpful. Not bad, but we needed more. I recently read a study about the, the level of skills and competencies required for today. And it references pastors, but I think it's pretty applicable uh, where, wherever you might serve, whether it's in healthcare or business or science. It, it just addresses the level of complexity we're facing. Anyway, it came out of Michigan State University and uh, it examined the tasks of a pastor. The study observed that the work of a local pastor requires 64 distinct knowledge, skills, abilities, personal characteristics. And the 
study concludes this way, quote, it is almost inconceivable to imagine that a single person could be uniformly high on all those skills and competencies. So what a daunting task all of you are involved in, whether you are teaching and training leaders or whether you are studying to lead. And yet outrunning the challenge of that task is the desperate need of the day. How we desperately need today distinctive Christian leaders who have clothed themselves with Christ and wear it well. And if Christ is our touchstone for equipping leaders, then I want to lay out for you your simple curricular agenda. Whether you are in your first year or your final year of a study or your final year as president, here is what you must master. You must learn how to die. You must learn how to die. So maybe this is a eulogy after all. <laughs> but you know what? I can't apologize for what might seem like a belief thesis of this sermon because this is good news. It's good news. You must learn how to die because there is something of the dynamism of the gospel in that. You must learn how to die because as a the theologian Karl Barth reminded us, only where graves are is there resurrection. Which brings us to the text for today. Mark chapter 10. Jesus provides what is probably some of the most counterintuitive leadership wisdom for us in our day and age. But before we get to Mark 10, what I'd like to do is situate those words in the wider context of Mark chapter 8 through 10, because it's sort of a unit in the gospel of Mark. And what I'd like to do real quickly is walk through that passage and and just see how what Mark is doing is he's composing this theological symphony, and he's just riffing on a theme throughout and he's playing variations on that theme and he's drawing and repeated images and and events and all of them work towards this final sort of coda of Jesus' words that we heard read to us, this culmination of this long wider unit, just pressing home this singular theme that we hopefully will get implanted in us. And Mark's basic theme is the subversion of power in God's kingdom. Power and privilege, that, that is, everyone is talking about that today, right? How do we steward this well? How do we use our places of privilege uh, for the sake of others? Mark is talking about this, the subversion of power in God's kingdom, how Jesus is the suffering Messiah and only those who are able to receive God in suffering in weakness, are able to glimpse God's magnificent grace and power, learning how to die. One of the variations that Mark plays with um, is how the people around Jesus, particularly the disciples, are just so clueless about this reality, how they do not get it. You know, the disciples are thinking, Messiahs, leaders, they don't die. They don't suffer, Jesus. They flex their muscles. They're warrior kings. And yet again and again, we see the disciples, they just don't get it. They're blinded 
One of the questions Jesus repeats throughout this whole series of passages, do you still not understand? Do you still not see? At one point, this is one of my favorite points, in chapter 8, verse 12, we read Jesus sighs deeply. You can, you can almost feel the slump of exasperation. I think I've heard Gary sigh, that same sigh, a few times. <laughs> Because he has spent much of his ministry career and leadership capital helping a sometimes clueless church get something of the mission of Jesus. He has asked uncomfortable questions and spoken inconvenient truths to a church that has often been blind to what Christ is leading us into. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus heals that blindness. And Mark introduces that hope in this passage. In chapter 8, verse 22, Mark introduces a really odd miracle story. Jesus healing a blind man. However, it doesn't take right away. Jesus has to do this twice. First instance, the blind man only sees blurry people. They look like moving trees, he says. And then immediately following this, uh, Peter claims to, to know and see the truth about Jesus. Yes, I get it. You are the Christ, he says. But you wonder, is he like that blind man? Does he just see a blurry vision of Jesus? Does he really get this? And what's interesting about Peter's confession is the place where it takes place. It takes place in this Roman colony called Caesarea Philippi. And that town was a Roman city. It was meant to model Roman rule and power. It was an emblem of Roman empire and domination and might. And in that place, this, this gallery of brutal Roman empire and power, Jesus again teaches his disciples of who he is. He says, the son of man must suffer many things, must be rejected and killed. Jesus is plainly laying it out, calling his disciples to deny themselves, to lose their lives. And the disciples, with, with their eyes probably just on all the Roman emblems of power around them, they just think Jesus has lost his mind. And Peter says, no, you can't do this. Well, then we move to chapter 9, where the, where the disciples have this momentous experience with Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus. And, and Jesus is shown to be the, the mighty son of God. And the voice of heaven testifies, listen to him. Do you hear what he's saying? Listen to him. But their understanding still remains so blurry. Coming off that mountain of transfiguration, Jesus still finds clueless disciples. And he says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long, how long shall I stay with you? And he holds a private seminar then for his disciples. And he's repeating the same teaching that Peter rejected earlier. Because. He's mighty God because he is resplendent with authority and power because this is who he is. This gets exercised in service. But the disciples cannot figure that out. They cannot make the equation of how the savior of the world is going to be weak and suffer. And so in verse 32 of chapter 9, it says they did not understand what he meant, but they were afraid to ask him. And so while Jesus is talking about suffering and dying, we see a whole other thing going on in the disciples. What the disciples are doing is they're carrying on an argument about who's going to be the greatest. They're vying for positions of power. And so Jesus does a little performance art. 
he takes a child and he welcomes this child and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children welcomes me. Now it's interesting in Mark what Jesus is doing. He's not saying become like a little child. He does that elsewhere. Here he says, welcome a little child. And he's saying it is about finding God at the bottom of all our pecking orders and power structures because a child was the most vulnerable, the most helpless, the runt, the castaway. And what is at issue here is these structures of privilege and power that Jesus subverts all of our notions of who is the greatest, who is the most powerful. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, Mark introduces again a child. Again, this, this immediate visible sign of what it is to be vulnerable. People were bringing their children to Jesus to have him bless them. And the disciples scurry those kids away. Get out of here. They're still not getting it. That's the little ones. It's among the powerless, among the vulnerable that Jesus is found. And then in contrast to the children, Mark then introduces someone very different. He introduces a very wealthy person, a man who has all the symbols and status of power and privilege and wealth. But he turns away from Jesus because Jesus calls him to leave all those symbols, all those structures of power, and he just cannot release that. And the disciples are just left scratching their head, astonished. If. The rich and powerful cannot be saved. Who can? Their worldview is so skewed. They are blind to the realities of God's kingdom. So one more time, Jesus teaches about his suffering. One more, this seminar for the disciples, teaching them he's not one who inflicts suffering. He's one who bears the pain of others. He plainly teaches on the nature of what sort of leader and savior he is. So there's been this threefold repetition in these chapters of Mark, sort of this Hebraic parallelism that Mark is using in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. And Jesus is saying throughout God's kingdom does not operate the way the world does, not like the power structures of this world. And still, after this, what happens? Two disciples come up to Jesus and ask him, Jesus, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. They're still chasing after places of power and privilege, which then is the occasion for that teaching of Jesus that we heard about the use of authority and power. Jesus called them together finally, and he said, you know those who are regarded as rulers and of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. We know that all too well, don't we? We know about those who would exercise their authority at the expense of the vulnerable. We see that with with such regularity. We almost don't ask why any longer. But don't you wonder why? Why is it that, that someone can set out Uh, to bring hope, to bring freedom to people and then end up imposing on those people another form of slavery, some form of oppression. 
Why does that happen with such utter regularity? Why is it that over and over again, people start out with noble, even holy purposes? And not, we're not just talking in the world, we're talking in the church as well. Why do they start with those noble, holy purposes and then end up either personally undoing themselves or abusing the power they hold? Why? Because we have not learned to die. We are so blind to this kingdom reality that it is in dying to ourselves and living to God where life is found. And so this whole section closes with another miracle story as it began with the miracle story of a blind man seeing. And we're left with this hope, with this longing of what blindness Jesus might heal us from. Can you see what Jesus is driving at here? Or are we blind to it too? Jesus is a king. He wields all authority and power, but he is a servant king, a suffering Messiah. And I don't suppose that I'm going to convince you of that today. Um, Jesus wasn't able to convince his disciples of that, despite his repeated teaching of that. How many times would it take for those disciples to get it, really? And that's a question for us today. How many times will it take for us to get it? Well, what it took was for nails to finally drive the point home. Because this is God's greatness, the capacity to be vulnerable and woundable, to suffer for the sake of others. This is our God. This is power of God exercised in this world. Authority yet fully vulnerable. Christ who was all authority and yet gave it all up. Who became weak, who suffered and died making of his life the ultimate gift for you and I. And now this living Jesus calls every one of us who claim the name of Jesus to follow him, to go where no one wants to go, to learn how to die. And you wonder why? Why is that dynamic at the heart of the gospel? Because... At least for one reason, power is such a subtle, deceptive, seductive idol. And until we die, we cannot be trusted to lead. Until we learn to die, we will remain so full of self, so dominated by either fear or pride, so susceptible to the uh, seductive grip of power. One writer, Andy Crouch, in his book, Strong and Weak, writes, only those who have descended to the dead can be fully trusted to lead. Because then only can they declare vanquished is the fear that animates all idolatry and exploitation. And how that takes shape in the world, Jesus has laid out. Become a servant. This is how it happens. Gather up all the authority that you have. Gather up all the power bestowed upon you by your place, your education, your privileged place in Western society. Gather that all up, all the authority granted to you as an image bearer of God and become a slave. 
voluntarily give yourself your strength, your privilege, your life, and lose yourself for the sake of the flourishing of the vulnerable. Put it in service of the weak. Restore the image of God among the vulnerable. End injustice. Bless the little ones, the least, the last, the lost. Now you might think, that's a pretty somber stuff you're laying down here, Phil. Right? It sounds that way, doesn't it? Learn how to die. Not something we often sign up for. If you've never experienced the cross and the resurrection, that does sound most serious and sobering. But here's the thing. On the other side of resurrection, that is the farthest thing from a funeral. On the other side of resurrection, it is the call to utter joy and freedom because it is only those who have died to themselves who are freed from fear It is only those who have learned to die who are free to risk like never before. Because seriously, what can the grave do if you've risen with Christ? Far from a grave cheerlessness, it is only those who have learned to die who can truly laugh and rejoice. It's probably one of the things I love most about Gary. It's that laugh. It is that playful spirit. It is that glint in his eye that he gets. And you know something good is up. I think that may be the distinguishing mark of a long and illustrious ministry career, but also of a long obedience to Jesus. Because that is the mark of someone who has learned how to die. Someone who has been taken beyond themselves. Who is able to see the big, beautiful story of God. To see where it is headed. That is a person free to rejoice and worship the beautiful, suffering Savior. Who is all authority and all power and all vulnerability. So friends. Clothe yourselves with Christ. Learn how to die so that you might rise up with the authority of the risen Christ so that you might serve God's new creation in every broken corner of this world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, amen. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, We do confess this is a teaching that is hard and we'd rather avoid because who wants to learn how to die? Would you convince us, Jesus, through the cross, would you portray the cross so vividly before us that we might see in there the only power that might heal us and this world? And would it move us Move us with such power to to help us become slaves of all that we meet. We are your servants, Jesus. We follow you, our crucified and risen Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Friends, I get to send you out with a blessing. How about you stand? I don't know if you do this. In our church, we do this. If you're going to receive something, you open your hands. Open your hands to receive the blessing of the Lord. May 
the grace, the overflowing grace of God our Father. And may the radical, selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit equip you to be slaves of all. Amen.